Egypt, 1922. The Valley of the Kings had always been there, hidden among the dunes across the Nile's west bank. For centuries, the dynasties of Egypt marked the land as a sacred gateway between the realms of the living and the dead, and so buried their greatest rulers in concealed chambers below the hills. This was common knowledge, and long after the great days of the pharaohs had passed and the sands of time had swept the tombs of the great ones into secrecy, the Romans and Greeks visited the burial grounds, not to pay homage exactly, but as well, tourists. Indeed, Egypt's most well-known tourist site has probably served as such for almost as long as the reign of the dynasties themselves. As centuries passed, the Valley of the Kings lay in silence, witnessed by the world's empires as they rose and fell. During his rule, the Emperor Napoleon sent an expedition to Egypt, and these early archaeologists were keen on recording what they found in the known tombs of interred rulers, as well as uncovering the tomb of Amenhotep III. It was during this time that one of the greatest discoveries in all of Egyptology, and indeed archaeology, may have occurred the uncovering of a building stone fragment used in the construction of an old Christian fort in the town of Rashid. The Rosetta Stone, presumably removed from a Ptolemaic-era temple, was a royal edict written in three languages, two of which were known. The third, however, was in hieroglyphics. Basically, nobody knew how to read hieroglyphics anymore until the Rosetta Stone was found. Towards the end of the 19th century, both French and British efforts began to piece together a rough deciphering of these hieroglyphics, which in turn helped put together a chronology of the New Kingdom pharaohs of ancient Egypt and all of its various periods, which I'm not going to get into because, oh my goodness, there would be so much to condense into this episode, so just like look it up or something. British archaeologists also decided to come up with a numbering system for tombs as they were discovered, a system that is still in use to this day. Around 1908, the Americans had started to get in on the action when explorer Theodore M. Davis uncovered what was thought to be the remnants of the tomb of Tutankhamun, a name you may have heard of. But all of what was discovered was just a few pots and trinkets that bore Tutankhamun's name. And that's when Davis pretty much decided to put a wrap on things, closing his 1912 findings by saying, I fear that the Valley of the Kings is now exhausted. Spoilers, he was wrong. If you know anything about French and British history, then you'll know that these two countries loved them some imperialism, and Egypt sadly was not spared, though it would go on to receive independence in 1922. And that is the year this already interesting story gets even more interesting. At the turn of the century, during all of the French-slash-British-slash-Egyptian power plays, Gaston Maspero, who had previously led Egyptian antiquities, was reappointed and went on to enlist the help of a young and eager British archaeologist named Howard Carter. The archaeological wunderkind immediately set about dis by discovering new tombs, which naturally impressed his bosses and probably liked the king or something. Howard Carter, employed and funded by British aristocrat George Edward Stanhope Molyneux Herbert, otherwise known as the Lord Carnarvon, decided to return to the site of the earlier Tutankhamun dig, which was now an abandoned village. The excavation team cleared the huts and debris and began to dig. 
at which point their water boy accidentally tripped over a stone buried in the sand. That stone turned out to be a hidden staircase. Thinking they had struck something big, and oh, had they ever, the Carter expedition uncovered the entrance to a doorway stamped with hieroglyphic seals, indicating that they had just unearthed the tomb of King Tutankhamun. To protect what could be an extraordinary find, Carter ordered the entrance reburied and then sent a telegram to Lord Carnarvon telling him to come at once. On November 23rd, he arrived with his 21-year-old daughter, the Lady Evelyn Herbert. The crew set to work immediately, with Carver approaching the door and creating a small hole to vent any poisonous gases that had accumulated in the some odd hundreds and hundreds of years since the boy pharaoh had been entombed. Carver lit a candle, placed it against the opening, and then managed to steal a look at what lay inside. The Lord Carnarvon, standing behind him, asked, Can you see anything? To which Carter replied, Yes, wonderful things. On the 29th, the sealed chamber was finally opened, revealing a treasure trove. Among the King Tut's possessions, gilded lounges, chests, miniature shrines, and thrones. Carver, Carnarvon, and the Lady Evelyn passed through two other sealed doors, guarded by life-size statues of the late pharaoh. Finally, they came to the inner burial chamber, which was marked with an inscription. Since Evelyn was the smallest of the trio, she crawled in first and discovered a magnificent sarcophagus with a death mask crafted out of lapis lazuli, carnelian, quartz, obsidian, turquoise, and glass. Guarding this casket was a statue of Anubis, the jackal-headed judge of the dead in the ancient Egyptian religion. Thus commenced the slow excavation and removal of treasures from King Tutankhamun's tomb. Further analysis was conducted on the structure of the tomb, including the hieroglyphics. The script outside the pharaoh's burial chamber was then translated, and what was inscribed set off a frightening, and perhaps coincidental, chain of misfortunes that would soon overshadow the wonderful find and grip the world. Death to those who cross this threshold into the sacred chamber of the royal king who lives forever. Unwittingly, Carver and his team had invoked the Pharaoh's curse. For better or worse, the most iconic symbol of ancient Egypt in the Western world is the mummy. The reason why is that burial in ancient Egypt was a pretty big deal. There are actually several different periods of ancient Egyptian history, but for the purposes of time and my sanity, most of this episode revolves around the New Kingdom period, which is often considered the pinnacle of this ancient civilization. Pyramids in function served as massive mausoleums for the ruling class. Bodies underwent mummification, which served as a mostly religious purpose. 
This process was sort of accidentally stumbled upon when bodies that were initially left in shallow graves in the desert were discovered to have been mummified due to the depletion of moisture in the corpse thanks to the desert air, effectively transforming them into human raisins. Gross and educational. The Egyptians of yore decided to go a step further to honor their special dead, such as their kings. Firstly, they would ceremoniously wash the corpse, after which they would remove most of the internal organs, leaving only the heart. This was needed in the journey to the afterlife, as that was the price of admission. The heart would be presented to Anubis, who would weigh it on the scale next to a feather. If you led an honest and righteous existence, your heart should be lighter than said feather, in which case your soul could pass on into paradise. But if your heart was heavy with sin, your soul was fed to a giant snake. While the heart was seen as important, the brain not so much. The ritual embalmers would stick a hook up the corpse's nose and kind of scramble the brains like eggs a little bit to remove them. The rest of the organs were dried out in a salt mixture wrapped in linen and then placed in one of four jars designed to resemble the head of a corresponding deity. Imseti took the liver, Hapi the lungs, Kabusanef guarded the intestines, and Dalmatef presided over the stomach. The body of the lucky individual was then preserved with a mixture of oil, plugged up with wax, rags, and sawdust, and then wrapped in 20 layers of linen bandages. A death mask would be placed over the corpse and then interred inside a decorated sarcophagus. And then bam, you got yourself a mummy. Since the old adage, you can't take it with you, didn't apply to the ancient Egyptians, they believed in burying their rulers with all of the fineries and luxuries they had accumulated during their lives, which unfortunately sometimes included their slaves and their pets. Yes, dog mummies are totally a thing. By the time of King Tut, everyone kind of decided that the pyramids were a lot of work and began burying their rulers in hidden tombs within the Valley of the Kings. Unfortunately, buried tombs along the Nile coast do not make for very good security measures, and well before the modern era, grave robbers were helping themselves to the pharaoh's loot. It was also a custom for pharaohs to consent to have their burial treasures reappropriated for their descendants. Long after the Egyptian kingdom had fallen, turn of the millennium Greek visitors reported visiting the Valley of the Kings and remarking how most of it had been dug up and plundered. So when Howard Carter's team uncovered the tomb of Tutankhamun, it was a really big deal. As for the man in gauze himself, there isn't actually a whole lot to say about King Tut. He was born the son of Amenhotep IV. He married his half-sister and had two daughters who sadly did not survive infancy. King Tut was also known to have a bit of a temper, which seems pretty par for the curse. I mean, course. He overruled his father's exclusive worship of the god Aten and reinstated worship of Amun, and then moved the capital back to Thebes. Tutankhamun did a lot of public works as well, a majority of them religious in nature, such as restoring temples and monuments to their former glory. He was also pretty big into diplomacy. Sadly, his reign was short-lived, as he died at age 18. The king had actually been ill for a very long time, possibly from malaria. He also had a long-standing foot deformity that may have necessitated the use of a cane. Though it's known that King Tut's tomb had been plundered at least twice before its rediscovery in 1922, it's a miracle that the robbers managed to overlook the royal chamber that Carter and his team uncovered. Transport of the chamber items to the museum in Cairo began shortly after Christmas of that year, on December 27, 1922. 
while working tirelessly on the extraction process, as well as trying to manage a scoop-hungry press, Howard would send messengers back to his house to run errands for general life maintenance. On one such occasion, the errand boy approached the house and heard a scream. The messenger discovered that a cobra had somehow snuck into the house and broken into the cage housing Carter's pet canary. It was presently in the midst of eating the bird alive. Not only are cobras just generally scary, but they were also the symbol for the pharaohs, commonly adorning their headpieces. News of the incident reached the press almost immediately and helped kickstart the rumor that Carter's team had not only uncovered the pharaoh's tomb, but his curse as well. Then, in early April, not long after removal of the treasures began, Lord Carnarvon was in the midst of shaving when his razor cut open an old mosquito bite. The wound became infected, and Lord Carnarvon died of sepsis not long after. The first victim, well, human victim anyway, of King Tutankhamun's curse. The public soon became convinced that malevolent forces were starting to work against the excavation team, and a majority of this superstition emerged from several sources. For one, most of the Western world still didn't know much about Egypt, and since Orientalism was still the theme of the day, anything quote-unquote exotic came packaged with mystery and suspicion. An ancient curse just seemed like, I don't know, something the ancient Egyptians would do, right? And the populace of 1922 wasn't exactly wrong, either. The attending priests would often use threat of deadly curses as deterrents for grave wrappers. But as we know, that didn't exactly stop them. Secondly, when Italian dictator Benito Mussolini heard about the curse, he ordered the removal of a mummy he'd been gifted from the prime minister's headquarters. Then, writer and inventor of Sherlock Holmes, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, chimed in with his own interpretation and believed that Carnarvon had been killed by elementals, or summoned nature spirits that had been conjured up by Tutankhamun's priests as protectors of the tomb. To the general public, this was actually a pretty big deal. Conan Doyle had been an avid proponent of spiritualism for most of his adult life, so spooky ghost things were kind of his forte. Then again, it was also discovered that Carnarvon had been dealing with a bout of pneumonia, which may have complicated things for his health a little bit as well. There was also the interesting factoid that Sir Bruce Ingram, an associate of Carter's, had received a mummified hand as a paperweight, which just sounds like you're begging to be cursed at that point. Allegedly, the hand came accessorized with a scarab bracelet that said, Cursed be he who moves my body. To him shall come fire, water, and pestilence. Ingram's house burned down not long after he received this gift. After he had it rebuilt, it was destroyed again, this time by flood. Soon, the curse of the pharaohs began to rack up a death count on the same level as any given season of Game of Thrones. Those whose deaths were attributed to the curse either came into contact with the tomb or had a hand in transporting its contents. Many of them died from suddenly acquired illnesses. Such was the case with George J. Gould, who died of intense fever not long after visiting the tomb in May, a month after Carnarvon's passing. In September of that year, Carnarvon's half-brother was struck near blind and died of sepsis after a botched dental procedure. The radiologist who first x-rayed Tutankhamun's mummy died at the start of the next year from an unknown illness. 
Others were shot or assassinated, with motive granted, but still dead. One member of the excavation team was poisoned. The removal of artifacts from the tomb concluded in 1930, and in that time, 11 deaths were attributed to the curse. The removal of artifacts from the tomb concluded in 1930, and in that time, 11 deaths were attributed to the curse. In the following years, more deaths were tied to the curse, but to list all of them would turn this into more of a cracked or BuzzFeed article than a podcast, so you can look them up if you're interested. I encourage you to do so. Even though most of his team was dropping like flies around him, Carter's only acknowledgement of a supposed curse came from a strange sighting of jackals around the tomb, jackals being servants of Anubis. Carter himself would die eventually, of lymphoma, at a then-respectable age of 64. Lady Evelyn, who was first to cha-cha into the pharaoh's tomb, and one would think this would make her especially curse-worthy, went on to live a very long life and eventually died in 1980. So what about that curse on the tomb? Pretty much a giveaway that there was something creepy going on, right? Well, the inscription on the tomb warning of death to anybody who disturbed the peace of the interred king was actually somewhat fabricated by the press. Now, there was an inscription on the door, that's true, but it basically said this door is sealed to prevent sand from getting in, an inscription as ominous as an IKEA assembly manual. King Tutankhamun's tomb was not the last to be uncovered in the Valley of the Kings, but just how much remains there to this day is a source of debate. It wasn't until 2005 that another tomb was discovered in the valley, which goes to show you that there hasn't been entirely too much progress since Howard Carter's discovery. Currently, the tombs of some of ancient Egypt's most prominent figures are still missing. This includes Narmer, the king who unified Egypt. King Tut's rule also saw displacement of the famous queen Nefertiti, who was removed from her tomb in Amarna and possibly interred in the Valley of the Kings. Hints of these reinterments come from an inscription left on the walls of the tomb of Horemheb by the high priest at the time, who alluded to a secret tomb hidden somewhere. This legendary tomb, which may contain the mummies and who knows what else, of some of Egypt's most famous rulers, has yet to be discovered. There's also the curious question of where a good majority of the royal treasure ended up. While grave robbers probably got some of the loot, archaeologists believe that most of it would have been accessible to them and is still waiting to be found. If it's anywhere, it might be in the missing tomb of Herihor, who once oversaw the reburial process during the Valley of the Kings period. There's a very good chance he pocketed some of that tomb treasure for himself, and it might still be with him. Where is that exactly? Well, no one knows for sure, but they are looking for it. And if that day comes when it is discovered, the archaeologists who uncover it may find more of a jackpot than any previous excavation thus far. Now, some of the complications surrounding finding new tombs comes from a recently discovered flood control system that the Egyptians of yore tried to utilize in order to keep the tombs from washing away during the rainy season. It was intended for the water to be diverted into channels and outlets away from any sensitive property. However, the system for some reason didn't last long. Ironically, its failure and the ensuing floods that came after are probably what buried and sealed Tutankhamun's tomb and prevented it from being ransacked by grave robbers. However, flooding may have just as easily submerged other tombs that are still waiting to be found. Regardless, archaeologists and historians do agree that there are definitely other tombs waiting to be discovered. It's just a matter of if and when. 
With the advent of technologies such as ground-penetrating radar and other arsenals of archaeology, the chances are actually high we could come across something relatively soon. One of Egypt's leading Egyptologists and regular History Channel fixture who has nothing to do with aliens is Zahi Hawass. He is a firm believer that other tombs will be uncovered. These, he speculates, may include the queens of the 18th dynasty, Ramesses VIII and Thutmose II. The queens, at least, he's pretty confident are definitely buried in the Valley of the Kings. He's also definitely sure that there's something, at least, to the pharaoh's curse. He has told stories from his early days of archaeology about his encounters with the uncanny. As a young archaeologist excavating an ancient necropolis at Peronutsisat, Hawass had to ship out several artifacts unearthed from the dig. Later that day, he received word that his cousin had died. A year to the day of the excavation, his uncle then died, and then the year after that, on the same day, his aunt passed away. As Hawass grew older, he decided to at least heed the warnings of the dead, which is probably a good idea, such as when he helped excavate the tombs of the builders of the famous Pyramids of Giza. During the excavation of, of a newly uncovered tomb, he came across an inscription that said, All people who enter this tomb who will make evil against this tomb and destroy it, may the crocodile be against them in water, and snakes against them and on land. When the hippopotamus be against them in water and the scorpion against them on land, which sounded like a very uncomfortable time. So wisely, Hawass avoided removing the mummies contained within. It is this podcaster's humble opinion that no one really should be removing the dead from anywhere they're initially buried, especially to be put on display. And I'm not saying that just because of a fear of a curse, which I totally do fear and I do respect you, King Tutankhamen, just putting that out there. But also, it's just not nice to dig up the dead and put them on display in front of a bunch of tourists, right? Well, interestingly, on that note, Hawass recounts a fascinating inverse on a mummy's curse, when an ill boy with an avid interest in ancient Egyptian history looked into the eyes of the mummy of King Amose and was suddenly cured, which presents a very compelling argument. Maybe it all comes down to respect. After all, you probably wouldn't want your body to be removed from its grave and put on display for a bunch of gawkers, right? So if that's the truth, then there may be something to a pharaoh's curse. Or maybe it's just the allure of a time and place we cannot fully understand, one that is steeped in mysticism and lore, that tinges everything with a bit of the unknown. Maybe it's just a coincidence and seeing what you want to see. Or maybe it's better off that the tombs of the great kings and queens of Egypt remain undiscovered. I mean, you remember what happened last time, right? Relic is written and produced by me, Maxwell. If you like what you heard and don't want to be cursed, then you can leave a good review or rating from Relic in Apple Podcasts or iTunes. The Relic Patreon, which is, by the way, patreon.com relic, also has ongoing exclusive content, Tales from the Reliquary. These are shorter episodes that cover some of the weirder or less lengthy lost artifacts that don't really fit into the show. Now, since that content is a bit special, I can't really say what artifacts are being covered currently, but the latest episode will make you want to click your heels together in anticipation. You can also now find me on Australian Radio. If you're a local or in Sydney, you can tune into 2SER 107.3 or stream directly from the website. Next time, 
Since the dawn of the millennium, a mysterious group of skilled individuals has been going around the world and pulling off both the most expensive and most flamboyant diamond heists. Who exactly are the Pink Panthers, and where might they strike next? The adventure continues. <laughs> 